to the third lecture in David Chalmers' intriguing John Locke lecture series. Uh, as you can see for yourselves, the uh, topic today is the case for a priori scrutability. David will talk until roughly uh, 6pm and then uh, he'll uh, take questions. Thanks, John, and uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. I, uh, I hope you all had appropriate celebrations yesterday for Rudolf Carnap's birthday. It was, in fact, his uh, 119th birthday. Um, aficionados among you may know that, in fact, he shares his birthday with, uh, with Bertrand Russell. It was Russell's 138th birthday, making it something of a... Uh, a red letter day for anyone interested in uh, constructing the world. <laughs> so um, the project for, uh, for today is to make a case for what I've called the a priori scrutability thesis, taking it that last time I made a case for the conditional scrutability thesis. And in the second half of the talk, I will focus on that matter, giving a number of arguments for the a priori scrutability thesis, starting from the conditional scrutability thesis. But before that, there's some issues I've deferred now a couple of times that I need to now revisit in a bit more depth. First of all, there's the issue of how the scrutability thesis should be formulated in terms of sentences or in terms of propositions. And second, some issues about how the nature of a priority and a priori scrutability is to be understood. So I'll spend a while at the beginning of this talk on those issues before getting to the arguments in the second half. So, the scrutability thesis, I mean, there's a number of them, but the general form of at least a central class of scrutability theses in which I'm interested is there's some compact class of truths so that all truths are scrutable from truths in that compact Class, And again, here, compact means roughly small enough to be interesting, with um, the uh, Laplacian scrutability base of physical truths serving as a paradigm, or the Carnapian scrutability base of phenomenal truths. Um, scrutability can be understood in a number of ways. For those of you who haven't been here on previous occasions, I've got a definition of the most central scrutability relation on the handout. But one of the questions which has arisen is how are the truths here to be understood? Are they true propositions? Are they true sentences? Or are they true something else, like uh, true thoughts or beliefs? So I think it's natural. I mean, the natural first suggestion is to understand them as propositions. Truths here are true propositions. All true propositions are scrutable from a compact class of true Proposition. But there's difficulty, and the difficulty here, at least for dialectical purposes, is that different theories of propositions are going to give different results. I mean, the nature of propositions is famously contested. There are Russellian theories of propositions, Fregean theories of propositions, possible world theories of propositions, and others. So just say, um, so, in a Russellian theory, propositions are composed from objects in the world, the planet Venus, properties, the property of being hot. On Fregean theories, propositions are composed from Fregean senses, 
roughly modes of presentation of those objects in the world. On possible worlds theories, propositions are themselves sets of worlds. And these three theories play in to scrutability theses in different ways. I mean, on the Russellian theory, famously, I mean, on the Russellian theory in the standard form of Russellian theories, not Russell's own, but the standard form that's become popular over the last half century or so, Hesperus' propos- pairs of sentences such as Hesperus is Hesperus and Hesperus is Phosphorus express the same proposition because coextensive singular terms contribute the same entity, in this case the planet Venus, to the proposition expressed. So we can't associate those sentences with different epistemological properties. Now for a number of the applications of the scrutability thesis, this is a desirable thing to do, not least in getting some Frigean results out of the, uh, the thesis. And even independent of that, there's some intuition, there's different epistemological properties for these sentences. But the Russellian proposition doesn't allow us if we associate properties with sentences by way of Russellian propositions, then this isn't going to work. Furthermore, I mean, if we go this way, just say you formulated scrutability in terms of Russellian propositions, it's at least arguable that an a priori scrutability base is going to require something like singular propositions for every individual. I mean, this is going to depend on your view about the a priori of singular propositions, but a lot of people think that you know, unconditional um, propositions, singular propositions are not in general a priori. If so, it looks like scrutability based might have that form. Interesting thesis for some purposes, not quite the, the, uh, the pattern that we've been uh, going after here. On possible worlds theories, 2 plus 2 equals 4 in Fermat's last theorem express the same proposition. They're both necessary truths, true in all worlds express the same proposition consisting of all worlds. And on many standard possible worlds theories, Hesperus is Hesperus, Hesperus is Phosphorus, will also express the same proposition. So again, we can't associate them with distinct epistemological properties. But again, there's an intuition that for many purposes, 2 plus 2 is 4 in Fermat's last theorem have very, very different epistemological properties. One expresses something that's easy to know, one expresses something that's much harder to know. If we went this way, furthermore, a scrutability base will arguably require just one proposition proposition containing our world and just our world. On Frigean theories, on the other hand, these epistemologically different sentences will all express distinct propositions because Frigean senses and propositions are roughly individuated by their fairly fine-grained epistemological properties. So a Frigean theory is better suited for our epistemological purposes. But dialectically, this uh, this is tricky. One of my dialectical purposes here is to use the scrutability thesis to help ground, to help make the case for a Frigean theory of propositions. If I was to just assume a Frigean theory of propositions at the start, then that would make that whole project look a bit circular. I mean, basically, it would turn out that if you start by assuming Frigean propositions, you can get Frigean propositions out. Not a terribly exciting conclusion. By the way, um, in the discussion the other day, someone in the discussion meeting said to me, Let's basically expressed the sentiment on the line, what's the point of all these scrutability theses anyway? What's the, what's the motivation? Why should, we, uh, why should we care about them? And I think there's a number of, uh, a number of reasons. But I do see this, uh, this dialectic between the Russellian 
and the Frigean about propositions and meaning is one of the central dialectical motivations here. I mean, I take it that over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years of philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, there's been a, you know, a pitched battle between a broadly Russellian direct reference outlook and a broadly Frigean outlook that manifests itself in different debates in the uh, philosophy of language um, and in the, uh, the philosophy of mind, the debate between direct reference theories and descriptivism, the debate between certain forms of externalism and certain forms of internalism. Well, I think once you've got, in my own work, a number of these issues have basically come down to the, uh, the a priori scrutability thesis, and this is where um, a number of people have wanted to, uh, to resist. I think that once you've got the a priori scrutability thesis, it's just pretty easy from there to make the case for the existence of something like Frigean contents, Frigean broadly semantic values in the vicinity at least of utterances and of thoughts. And, uh, and from there, it's, uh, you know, from there it's uh, not hard to make the case that sort of at some fundamental level, the Frigean approach is, uh, is basically correct. Not, there's nothing right about a, a, a Russellian approach. So I think that uh, yeah, that's just one instance where having the a priori scrutability thesis on the table fairly quickly and directly gets you to a, uh, to a, uh, um, a Frigean theory. Like another motivation is that uh, given something like the fundamental scrutability thesis, issues about the mind-body problem, some of the debates about physicalism and dualism with which I've been uh, involved with come down to the, uh, often come down to something like the fundamental scrutability thesis. Given something like the fundamental scrutability thesis, there's fairly direct arguments for dualism. Uh, without that, then the, uh, the case can be resisted and one can hold on to a kind of physicalism. Anyway, so I'm, I'm not going to directly get into those issues now, but maybe worth holding in background as, uh, as motivations. I do take it that these issues, Frigianism versus Russellianism, internalism versus externalism, physicalism versus dualism, are really at the core of some of the, uh, the biggest debates in philosophy. So, you know, this is life or death stuff, folks. The fate of philosophy rests on it. Um, now back to your uh, regularly scheduled programming. Um, okay, so we can't just assume a, uh, a Frigian theory uh, for these dialectical purposes. And we can't just stay neutral on the nature of propositions either, because it looks like different accounts of, uh, of propositions are going to give different results here. So, for our purposes, I think it's better to formulate scrutability in terms of sentences. All true sentences, we can put it in this form, all true sentences are scrutable from a compact class of true base sentences. And then there's an immediate worry about context-dependent sentences, which suggests we might want to formulate it in terms of something like sentence tokenses or utterances or assertions or sentences in context because of you know, words like tall that maybe express different contents in different contexts that we might want to relativize. Scrutability might depend on... Uh, might vary with that kind of context dependence. So it looks like what we're going to want to say is something like all true sentence tokens or all true assertions are scrutable from true base sentences. I think if you do things right, then you don't need context-dependent sentences in the base, um, or maybe just a couple of them, like for, uh, for certain indexicals. But for, to make things maximally general, you want them in the, uh, in the uh, dependent class, at least. In, in the dependent class, at least. So this requires us 
to appeal to epistemological relations between subjects and sentences, or between subjects and tokens, or utterances, or assertions. You know, we're going to need to say things like talking about knowing a sentence or a sentence token, being in a position to know a sentence S, believing S, being justified in believing S. I take it this is at least a fairly non-standard and somewhat awkward way to speak. We normally talk about knowing propositions, believing propositions, and on you go. So one question here is how do we make sense of this relation? So... I mean, it's natural in the first instance to understand knowing a sentence S or knowing a sentence token or an utterance as knowing the proposition P, where S expresses P. And in fact, you know, I'm, I don't want to resist that myself. This may well work out okay, at least for our purposes, on a Frigean view of propositions. But on other views, you're not going to get the right results. You're going to get coarse-grained results. For example, on this way of understanding things, if somebody knows a sentence Hesperus is Hesperus, they know the sentence Hesperus is Phosphorus, and that's not the right result for, for present purposes, if we want fine-grained epistemological results. So I think we need a finer-grained understanding. So at this point, I want to make, a, make the claim that everyone needs a fine-grained way of associating knowledge and belief with assertions. This isn't just something idiosyncratic or just something that the Frigaean should be committed to. There's a whole bunch of phenomena which are really, to be explained adequately, require such a fine-grained relation. And here I have in mind phenomena such as sincere assertion, knowledgeable assertion, just, yeah, justified assertion, lying, norms of assertion, and on you go. So to make this case, I'll, uh, I'll present a couple of, uh, of arguments, which I'll call... Uh, Arguments from assertion. Hopefully, these will be arguments from assertion in a uh, in a good sense, rather than the uh, in the in the, the more traditional uh, fallacious sense. So the key uh, the key case to the arguments from assertion is a case where uh, let's say Mary knows that the morning star is a planet, but she believes that the evening star isn't a planet. And let's say she uses the term. Hesperus and Phosphorus in the canonical way, so there's some association between Hesperus and the Hesperus and the evening sky, and um, Phosphorus and the morning sky. Intending to deceive John, she says, Hesperus is a planet, although she believes that the evening star is not a planet. So, at this point, I think, one could try to run an argument against Russellian theories of proposition of propositions based on this, on this data. And here's how it, uh, it might go. Uh, premise one, Mary's assertion is not a knowledgeable assertion. Likewise, it's not a sincere assertion. It's not a justified assertion. It violates the norms of assertion, and so on. Second, if the Russellian view is correct, Mary knows the asserted proposition. Third, an assertion is knowledgeable if and only if the speaker knows the asserted proposition. Conclusion. The Russellian view is incorrect. Now, I mean, the Russellian might react in a uh, number of, uh, of ways here. I take it on the standard Russellian view, there's, uh, there's no problem with premise two. A Russellian might try to uh, deny premise one, but I think this would be a you know, fairly desperate 
move. I think in the, you know, this, this assertion is fairly clearly, some pretty clear sense in which this is not knowledgeable, it's not, uh, it's not sincere, um, but insofar as knowledge is intended as something like a norm of assertion, it looks like Mary's assertion is violating those norms, and so on. I mean, there are issues about how you want to use the words sincerity, knowledgeability, and so on, but clearly there's a phenomenon here that needs to be captured, whatever we call it. Um, More promisingly, the, uh, the Rossellian might deny premise three. And I take it that that's the move that many Rossellians are likely to make, here appealing to something like geysers, saying assertions are knowledgeable, not just if and only if the speaker knows the asserted proposition, but if they know it under a relevant guise, or if some other condition obtains. So I mean, I'm inclined to think that as an argument against the Rossellian view, this argument is not without force. I think, you know, I mean, something like premise three is the pretty standard, is a pretty standard first-past first past natural analysis of knowledgeability and likewise for things like sincerity. Still, I don't think it's undeniable, so I'm not inclined to take this as a knockdown argument against the Rossellian view. Still, with that in mind, I think we can, uh, we can rephrase the argument into, a, for an, into an argument for a slightly different hedged conclusion. Here we'll again take the data point that Mary's assertion is not knowledgeable, likewise not sincere, not justified, and on you go. Second, we'll just um, we'll have the premise, if the Rossellian view is correct, Mary knows the asserted proposition. And this time we'll have the hedge conclusion that if the Rossellian view is correct, it's not the case that an assertion is knowledgeable if, the, if and only if the speaker knows the asserted proposition. So basically we're taking, the, uh, we're taking uh, premise three and moving into, the, moving into the conclusion to get a conditional Conclusion, then the, the kind of Rossellian who is inclined to respond by denying premise three will presumably be okay with this. Okay, so that's a suggestion then that knowledgeability, given these other views of propositions, something like the knowledgeability of an assertion, is not simply a matter of a relation to the expressed proposition. So I think this naturally motivates the, uh, the um, Establishment, the suggestion there are relations between speakers and assertions here that aren't fully mediated by relations between the speakers and the associated propositions. So let's say that in these cases one's assertion of S is knowledgeable if and only if one knows S, where you know, speakers knowing S, that's a placeholder for a relation to be further explicated, but it's at least got to fit that, uh, that data point. So one question then is, you know, and intuitively in this case Mary may know the, uh, the assertion that uh, Phosphorus is a planet, even without knowing the assertion Hesperus is a planet. So what does knowing S consist in? Well, at this point, I think different theorists are going to give different accounts. Um, one pretty standard approach for a Rossellian at this point is to invoke something like guises, or modes of presentation of propositions, which they take to play a psychological and perhaps epistemological role, even if not a, uh, a semantic Role. So we might say then that knowing S, where S is an assertion, is, a, is knowing the proposition expressed under the guise under which the assertion expresses the proposition. Um, for other Rossellians, knowing S might be a matter of knowing an associated descriptive proposition. Scott Soames has made moves in that direction recently. For others, uh, knowing S is a matter of knowing the metalinguistic claim that S, that very assertion, is true. I think for certain reasons that's not the best way to go, but it's at least worth considering. Now, for a Fregean, of course, we might well say knowing S is just a matter of knowing P, where S expresses P. 
So, I think you know, there's a lot to be said about which of these is, is right. There's an account, which I'm fairly tempted by, which I think is, has the potential to be, to be general between a number of these, uh, of these different accounts. It's not uncommitted, it's not totally neutral, but I don't think it begs too many questions. And this is an account in terms of underlying thoughts, psychological states, mental states like beliefs. So here the thought is that, uh, here the idea is that all non-defective assertions of sentences or assertive sentence tokens express thoughts. But here thoughts aren't propositions or abstract objects. Thoughts are token occurrent mental states. Let's call them uh, entertainings, because you know, it's a maximally general class of um, occurrent of token propositional attitudes that can constitute belief, knowledge, and so on. So we never, I'll take it that at least that when you believe P, you entertain P. When you know P, you, uh, you entertain you entertain P, at least in the, uh, in the occurrent cases. I mean, one can also do this for non-occurrent cases, but the occurrent ones are the ones that matter here. Now, there's a lot to be said about the expression relation between um, thoughts and sentences. The thought is, you know, thoughts get expressed in sentences, and it's a, it's a truth-preserving relation, perhaps even an a priori truth-preserving relation. And I'll take it to be a constraint on the, on the relation, not a full analysis. It's a priori that an assertion is true, if only if the thought that it expresses is true. So the thought is, for all at least non-defective assertions, there's a thought that's expressed that intuitively has the same content, has the same truth conditions as the assertion. And then we can associate epistemological properties with the assertion by looking at the epistemological properties of the thought. So then we can say, for an asserted sentence token S, for example, the speaker knows S, when S expresses a thought that constitutes knowledge. I take it some thoughts constitute knowledge, some don't. If the thought constitutes knowledge, the speaker knows S. The speaker believes S when S expresses a belief. Um, the speaker is justified in believing S when S expresses a justified belief or a thought that constitutes a justified belief, depending on whether you take thoughts to be identical to these beliefs or items of knowledge or to merely stand in a constitution relation. So even on, I take it that even on a Russellian view, then now it'll happen that Hesperus is Hesperus can express one thought, one psychological state, while Hesperus is Phosphorus expresses a different thought. Um, in the case of Mary, for example, Hesperus is Hesperus may express a, a thought that constitutes a belief for her, while Hesperus is Phosphorus may express a mere entertaining that doesn't constitute a belief for her. So that's how it goes for knowledge of sentence tokens. There's more to be said here about things like persistence of, uh, of thoughts over time and their re-identification across worlds, and we can get into that in discussion if you like, but this is a good start. We also need to understand knowledge of sentence types. For sentence types, S, we can say uh, the speaker knows S when the speaker has knowledge expressible by an assertion of S. I mean, this is only really going to work well when S is is not context dependent. Maybe it'll also work for primitive indexicals like, a, like I and now. Um, so in this case, we don't require that S, in fact, be, uh, be uttered. Um, likewise for a belief and so on. And it, again, the relevant sentence types will be context invariant or involve these primitive indexicals. Now, there are a few tricky issues that come up uh, through having sentence tokens in the uh, dependent class. You might worry, for example, that it's going to make the truth of the scrutability thesis dependent on which tokens are actually uttered in the world. There are various things you might do to, uh, 
to mitigate that require to hold in various nearby worlds, require the thesis also for sentence types in the dependence class. But again, that's something we can talk about. Okay, so that will do for, uh, for sentences and propositions. Now something about uh, a priority and a priori scriptability. Uh, I mean, it's standard to associate a priority in the first instance with items of knowledge, with a priori knowledge, or with justifications, derivatively with, uh, with propositions. We'll say uh, P, is known, P is known a priori by S if S knows P with justification independent of experience. P is knowable a priori, or P is a priori, if and only if it's possible that P is known a priori. Okay, how's this going to go for, uh, for sentences? Well, Given what we've just said, there's a, uh, a natural way to go. A sentence token S is known a priori if and only if S expresses a priori knowledge. S expresses a thought that constitutes a priori knowledge. And S is knowable a priori, or just S is a priori, if S expresses a thought that's justifiable independent of experience yielding a priori knowledge. So we'll associate uh, a priori with sentence tokens and in virtue of epistemological properties of the corresponding thoughts. Now, if one accepts fine-grained Frigean propositions, there's a fairly natural thing to say here, which is to say that S is a priori, if and only if the proposition expressed by S is knowable a priori. If one accepts Russellian propositions and guises, the fairly natural thing to say here, S is a priori, if and only if the proposition expressed by S is knowable a priori under the guise of assertion. I think somehow this is can be true at least most of the, the time. There are, some, there are some, uh, some tricky cases. But in any case, we don't need to worry about how the propositions fall out at this point. So, some features of a priority as we're understanding it. One is, quite importantly, mode of presentation sensitivity. As we're doing things, Hesperus is Hesperus, if it exists, is a priori, while Hesperus is Phosphorus, if it exists, is not. This is not to say there aren't other conceptions of a priority, ways of associating them with sentences in virtue, say, of the Russellian propositions they express that don't work that way. It's just a, it's a feature of this particular conception that it works this way. Of course, as we've already focused on quite a lot, there's a heavy idealization here. We're idealizing away from cognitive limitations of particular speakers or thinkers. Worth noting, this is a, what I might call a non-introspective notion. Sometimes people are inclined to count claims like uh, I am thinking or I'm experiencing as a priori. My own view is these should not be counted as, uh, as a priori, because these all involve justification by introspective evidence. Something worth discussing just briefly is whether a priori should be understood as involving a certain kind of conclusiveness. Sometimes a priori is understood to involve particularly high standards of justification, what we might call conclusive justification, a kind of justification that guarantees knowledge, not a kind of justification we normally demand in the uh, a posteriori sphere. My own view is that there is an interesting notion of conclusive a priori justification that works this way, and it's arguable that this is a kind of justification one can at least get in some cases through mathematical proof, for example, or through certain forms of analysis. And we could, it's a verbal issue which of these we call, we require for a priori justification. I think 
I'm not, I'm not uninterested in formulating some theses in this vicinity in terms of the conclusive a priori, and for certain purposes that becomes quite relevant. But for present purposes, though, I don't think we need to maintain that high a bar. We can allow there's such a thing as, you know, for example, inductive mathematical knowledge, which, is, uh, which carries a, a kind of justification that falls short of guaranteeing a priori certainty. So I won't require conclusiveness, at least for now. Now then, um, okay, so the question of a priori scrutability. Um, we say, okay, the a priori scrutability thesis, at least in the form that we, uh, last time we focused on scrutability theses of a somewhat limited form, saying that for all ordinary truths M, M is scrutable from a certain base class of truths, PQI, roughly physical and phenomenal and indexical truths and perhaps some secondary quality and intentional truths, laws, counterfactuals. Um, in the case of a priori scrutability, that comes to, for all ordinary truths M, M is a priori scrutable from PQI. Now, things go a little bit differently here depending on whether M is a sentence type or a sentence token. In the case where M is a sentence type, we can just do this, I think, in terms of a relevant sentence type, that uh, PQI prime, if that's a relevant conjunctive sentence, um, the material conditional from that to M is a priori. And then we'll just use the previous definition of a priority of sentence types. For sentence tokens, it's a little bit tricky. We'll have to rely on the fact that sentence token M expresses a thought on a given occasion for a speaker, at least if it's non-defectively uttered. And we can then rely on epistemological relation between that, relations between that thought and certain other potential thoughts, thoughts that might be expressed by PQI prime. So we can say, take the thought that's expressed by M and consider a potential disjunction of that thought with a thought apt to be expressed by uh, PQI prime, in fact, with the negation of that thought. And then say, is that disjunctive thought, which is equivalent to a material conditional thought, is that thought a priori? And then we'll get things to, to go through. Okay, so that's roughly uh, a priority and a priori scrutability. So how the, uh, how's the echoing from the, uh, from the microphone? Is it not too bad? Okay. Okay, so now uh, three arguments for a priori scrutability, starting from conditional scrutability. The first one I'll just cover briefly, because I don't think it's the most forceful. Still, I think it carries a certain prima facie force, at least. So last time, we made the case that for all ordinary truths, M, roughly macroscopic truths about the... Uh, the natural world, leaving aside hard cases, one's in a position to know that if PQI, then M. And in the case where M is a sentence token, the speaker is in a position to know, under an idealization, that if PQI, then M. Where being in a position to know involves... People are allowed to use empirical evidence they currently have. They're not allowed to go out and acquire more empirical evidence. So at the very least, it looks like one can know the material conditional... Uh, from PQI to M from the armchair. If you assume that knowledge of the indicative gives you conditional knowledge, enables you to, to know the material, which I think is very plausible. Um, then the question, the residual question is going to be, is the armchair justification in these cases essentially empirical, or is it, or is it not? After all, I've allowed that the empirical 
that the justification that the speaker has for these cases may be empirical. I haven't barred the speaker from using empirical knowledge. So opponents at this, claim, at this point may claim that the, uh, the, the justification is essentially empirical. And in the debate over theses like this over in recent years, especially over the mind-body problem and two-dimensionalism and so on, I mean, different people want to get off the bus at different points. But I take it that the most common place for people to want to get off the bus is at precisely the point of a priori scrutability. Maybe there are epistemological relations here, but why I think they're a priori, and this, I think, then is where the rubber hits the road. Is the justification in these cases essentially empirical, or is it not? So here's the, uh, here's the first argument. It's a fairly flat-footed argument, but again, I think it's at least got a, it's at least somewhat illuminating. So let's uh, consider what happens. I take it there are certain, there's a certain form of suspension of belief that one can engage in, made, made famous by, by Descartes. Descartes suspended beliefs about the, uh, about the empirical world and considered what followed, what could he know even upon suspending those beliefs. So let's take it, there is a form of suspending belief in, say, a, in a given proposition. So that proposition is no longer available to justify other beliefs. I mean, it's a tricky question whether there really is such a thing or something we can really engage in. You might want to understand that as a special conditional act, you suspend, suspend belief, and then we can talk about what you can know conditional on that suspension of belief, and so on. But let's, uh, let's run with the, uh, the natural Cartesian idea. But let's now think about the act of suspending all empirical beliefs. I mean, suspending uh, empirical beliefs about the, uh, about the external world and suspending introspective beliefs as well. Now, claim. So, premise one. The conditional belief in M, given PQI prime, the conjunction of sentences in PQI, is justified even if one antecedently suspends all empirical beliefs in that, in that form. Second, if that's the case, then the conditional belief in M given PQI prime is justified non-empirically. Conclusion. Uh, belief in if PQI prime then M is justified a priori. So that's an argument that suggests that there's not any, maybe there's empirical justification here, but it's not essentially empirical. It looks like the conditional belief is justifiable here, even upon suspension of all empirical evidence, and therefore is justified non-empirically. Okay, so questions. Why um, believe the premises? Well, here's one way to make the case for, uh, for premise one. Say, okay, you've, I've suspended all this empirical belief now. I don't know about stuff going on in the external world or even introspective stuff. How on earth can I possibly do anything? Well, here the thought is that all the relevant empirical information is packed into the uh, into the antecedent, into uh, PQI prime. In particular, you might think, just say, you, for example, you're using a cosmoscope, even after suspending empirical beliefs, suspending your empirical beliefs about, from the armchair about the external world and even introspective ones. Well, the cosmoscope will conditionally give you all that relevant information, and you can uh, use the cosmoscope to tell you about all kinds of perceptual goings-on conditionally, and all, even all kinds of introspective goings-on Conditionally, and any work that empirical evidence was going to do in getting you to the conclusion could be done from the cosmoscope. So I think there's at least an intuition that somebody who suspended empirical beliefs could use the cosmoscope and still come to have justified conditional beliefs. Premise two. Well, here the thought is that the justifying role of experience in justifying beliefs is screened off by a certain role in justifying um, certain basic empirical beliefs, such as perceptual and introspective empirical 
beliefs so that um, roughly it's going to turn out this way that if you suspend if you suspend the justification of empirical beliefs here, this is also going to suspend the justifying role of experience. It's a tricky question as to whether there's a form of justification by experience that might carry through even when you even when you've justified, when you've suspended empirical belief. But I think maybe we can suspend a we can stipulate a particularly strong form of suspension of judgment so that um, experience, experience and it's just not available to play its justifying role, then I think you get to the, uh, the conclusion. Now, I said this was a fairly flat-footed argument. I think it's not a difficult one to respond to. I mean, the worry is here that, for a start, we're pretty fallible about which beliefs are empirical beliefs. When we run the thought experiment, we might be imagining suspending certain beliefs, like beliefs about concrete objects in the external world and their, and their qualities, but, hey, or maybe some other beliefs are empirical beliefs too, like, say, mathematical beliefs. But you didn't know they were, um, they were empirical beliefs, so you didn't suspend them, and maybe you relied on them. Furthermore, we're also somewhat fallible about what, about what it takes to suspend all empirical beliefs, both because we don't know which beliefs are empirical, and because in our, intuit, in our intuitive running of the thought experiment, we may ignore certain non-obvious justifying relations between those empirical beliefs and relevant knowledge. Still, I think the argument is not totally... Uh, pointless. I think one should really concede the point to a start, for a start, or at least you know, concede the point pending a lot of further investigation. Still, I think the argument gets somewhere. It does suggest, at the very least, that, that the material conditional from PQTI to M is not justified by any obviously empirical belief. But at the very least, that it's not obviously justified by any obviously empirical belief. One still might wonder about more subtle roles, um, more subtle roles here. The second argument is the one on which I'm inclined to have put the most weight for present purposes. This is what I'll call an argument from uh, reconditionalization. I'm thinking about what the best word is for this, uh, for this argument. It's called reconditionalization. In a way, it's the reverse of standard conditionalization. Maybe you could call it reverse, uh, reverse conditionalization. Then all this stuff ends up being a bit of a, uh, a mouthful. I'm interested in other, uh, other thoughts about the best terminology here. So here's a uh, somewhat complicated argument, which we can then take a bit at a time. Premise one, for all ordinary truths M, one's in a position to know if PQI prime than M. And I think one here can be the Laplacian intellect, or in the, in the case of the previous argument, just the speaker. Um, that's just an expression of the conditional scrutability thesis. Next claim, a crucial one. If one is in a position to know if PQI prime then M, justified by empirical evidence E, then one's in a position to know if PQI prime and E then M, with weaker empirical evidence independent of E. And here the thought is, okay, well, if the conditional claim required the evidence, then build the evidence into the antecedent, one could, one's in a position to know that without the empirical evidence in question. That involves what I call the principle of reconditionalization, which I'll come back to quite a lot in what follows. Okay, from those two, then the thought is, okay, let's just, so the, here's the thought, roughly. This belief, if PQI prime, then M, either it's justified a priori, or it's not, or it's justified by some empirical evidence. If it's justified by some empirical evidence, let's take some empirical evidence, E, that it's justified by. Okay, well then if we add that to the antecedents, you'll get a modified conditional belief if PQI prime and, if PQI prime and E 
then M, which is justified independently of E. Then just repeat this for all relevant empirical evidence. And maybe one could repeat it just for all basic empirical evidence. Empirical evidence not itself grounded in, uh, in other empirical evidence. And then one will, uh, then the thought is just repeat this process enough times, build all the relevant empirical evidence into the antecedents, and then you'll get a uh, conditional belief that's justified independent of empirical evidence. So for all ordinary truths M, there's basic empirical evidence F here, the conjunction of all um, the relevant empirical evidence got to that repetitive process such that one's in a position to know if PQI prime and F, then M, a priori. And that and the thought is three follows basically from two and one by repeated application of what's in premise two. Then four, Basic empirical evidence is itself a priori scrutable from PQI. That's itself a contestable claim, but I'll come back to that in, uh, in what follows. You can see why it's at least a natural claim, given some things I said last time. Ah, conclusion, for all ordinary truths M, M is a priori scrutable from PQI. Okay, so there's two pretty contestable premises here. The key ones are premise two and premise four. So I'm going to focus on both of those then in the next little while. So what was going on in, uh, in premise two? Well, basically, it's a version of what I call a reconditionalization principle that, you know, that converts knowledge with empirical justification to conditional knowledge that's independent of that justification. So here's one statement of it. Actually, it's a statement of a slightly different version involving unconditional belief, but this, I, mean, I think it'll work for our purposes. If a rational agent knows M, with justification from E, they can conditionally know M given E with justification independent of E. The justification of their conditional knowledge doesn't involve E. Why think that? Well, here's a basic intuitive argument for it. Just say the speaker knows M with justification from E, the, think the thinker can then suspend judgment about E. And they can merely suppose E, you know, for the purposes of conditional proof, then upon supposing E, it will still be available to do all of its justificatory work, conditional on the supposition. Since E could justify M when, uh, when really had as evidence, it can also justify it in this conditional role. The speaker can conclude M conditionally and discharge the conditional, discharge the assumption, yielding the conclusion that if E, then M, which is what we need for our purposes. So that's the intuitive idea. I think there's something going for it. It's interesting to look at this in a uh, formal version in terms of um, you know, degrees of belief and the, uh, in particular in terms of the, uh, the Bayesian principle of conditionalization which I think this principle of reconditionalization is closely connected to. So the standard principle of conditionalization says something like the following. We take it that uh, speakers have credences in sentences or propositions, and all you see our star for basically for rational credence. So if a speaker has a certain rational credence in uh, M given E, credence phi at time T1, and then the thinker goes on to acquire total relevant evidence E 
between time T1 and T2, then the rational credence that they should have in M at T2 is phi. So if you've got a certain rational conditional credence at T1, you acquire conditional uncertain evidence, you acquire precisely that evidence between T1 and T2, then your unconditional credence at T2 should be the same, should be phi. So that's the standard principle of, it's a version of the standard principle of conditionalization, fairly uncontroversial, um, at least fairly orthodox. So here's a, reconditionalization is basically conditionalization in reverse. So here's one version of it, which I call strong reconditionalization. If the rational credence in M, if thing has rational credence M in phi at T2, and they acquire total relevant evidence E between T1 and T2, then they should have rational conditional credence phi in M given E at T1. So basically we're going backwards. If you, if you know M based on E, or you've got degree uh, credence phi in M based on E between T1 and T2, then back at T1 you should have had um, conditional credence in M given E of phi. Now I think this principle is a bit too strong. You're going to get counterexamples in certain cases. You're in particular going to get counterexamples in cases where credences in M given E are not defined at T1. It may be, for example, that in some cases acquiring the evidence E enables possession of the concepts in E or the concepts in M. By the way, I, sh I should say that at this point I'm, I'm basically presupposing a propositional conception of evidence. Evidence is involves relations to evidential propositions. I take it that everything I'm saying is compatible with views, views on which um, evidence, one's evidence is one's knowledge, although I don't think I'm committed to anything uh, nearly that strong. We could talk about how it goes if you have non-propositional conceptions of evidence. Um, okay, so strong reconditionalization is a bit too strong. But now here's another principle called weak reconditionalization. If rational credence in M is phi at T2 and one acquires total relevant evidence E between T1 and T2 and, and furthermore, the rational conditional credence in M given E is defined at T1, then rational credence, conditional credence in M given E is phi at T1. Well, that I think is that's just entailed by the principle of conditionalization. So that one is fine if you think conditionalization is fine. What we really need for our purposes is a closely related thesis, which I'll call synchronic reconditionalization, which involves the kind of unwinding that goes on in weak reconditionalization, but then making it all relative to the later time, T2. So if rational credence in M is phi at T2, and one acquires total relevant evidence E between T1 and T2, and rational conditional credence in M given E is defined at T2, then the rational credence in M given E is phi at T2, with justification independent of E. So why believe that? Well, if you've got weak reconditionalization, the thought is, well, at T1, before you ever acquired evidence E, at least in that, as long as the credence in M given E was even defined, then you could have a certain rational credence in M given E. And clearly, um, that credence, the justification of that credence has to be independent of E because you haven't yet acquired evidence E. So now what we're doing is just taking that phenomenon, taking it to the later point, um, T2. If at T1, as long as the, uh, the credence 
is defined, then it's, uh, then it's justified independent of V. It looks like the same ought to apply at T2. So when's rational conditional credence in M given E at T2? It ought to be. Also ought to be phi. And also ought to have justification independent of E. Even though you have E at this point, it wasn't needed to get that justification at T1. shouldn't be needed at T2. So I think weak reconditionalization at least strongly suggests synchronic reconditionalization. And that's really the key thesis for our purposes. So I think there's at least something to be said for these theses. Interested to uh, hear reactions to this, especially from, I mean, it may be this is actually discussed a lot in the uh, literature in the, on formal epistemology and Bayesianism, but I don't know a whole lot of the relevant discussion. So I'm interested to get people's reactions to that. Okay, so that's basically the core of the case for uh, the core of a case for the reconditionalization principle, and I think a version, of, a, a version of a principle like that can make the case for uh, the relevant premise too, and the argument for reconditionalization. The other worry then is going to be premise four. And here the issue is basically tied to the scrutability of evidence. I mean, basically, where we got to in the conclusion three was that for all ordinary truths M, there's some basic empirical evidence F, maybe a whole class of it with a certain conjunction F, um, such that one can know if PQI prime and F, then M, independently of empirical evidence. But now the worry is, what's in F? If F can have anything you like, you know, cats and dogs and, uh, and bottles and gods and so on, then it looks like we're not going to have a compact scrutability base. We're not going to get a, the kind of scrutability thesis we want. We're certainly not going to get scrutability from PQI. Okay, so I think it comes down to what is the relevant total empirical evidence going to be? And I think we can bring this down to total basic empirical evidence of the, uh, of the, uh, the thinker. Um, evidence is not grounded in more basic evidence. So on one conception of basic evidence, one which I'm not unsympathetic with, our basic evidence concerns phenomenal states of affairs. If so, um, that basic evidence is going to be included in Q, and F will be scrutable from PQI. On another, more liberal conception of, of basic evidence, our basic evidence concerns roughly you know, primary and secondary qualities in the external world, as well as perhaps phenomenal states of affairs. So our basic evidence concerns you know, things, certain things knowable through introspection, especially phenomenal states, plus distributions of you know, colors and, uh, and shapes in the in, in space-time, well, then I think the same applies. Again, if secondary qualities are built into Q, that happens fairly straightforwardly. If they're not built in, then I think you can still make a case based on reasonably plausible assumptions that they're implied by the more basic PQI, or scrutable from the more basic PQI. And even if basic evidence, as long as basic evidence is constrained in form, even if it goes beyond the phenomenal or the, uh, the, uh, the primary and secondary qualities, if it involves certain constrained classes or families of concepts, then it looks like, at the very least, you may have to go beyond PQI, but, but the scrutability base, you, you'll then get a scrutability base which is the union of PQI and F, and that scrutability base will at least be compact. Now, the threat is going to come if, if, if all kinds of stuff, you know, who knows what, can be basic evidence. So you might think at this point I still I need a bit of a, uh, a foundationalist thesis. Again, to the extent that, our, you know, that certain forms of evidence are uh, the truly basic evidence, and everything goes beyond that. Now, again, I don't think I need anything quite that strong. And a version of a move I made in the last talk can also be applied 
here. So this is uh, what last time I called the, uh, the core knowability thesis. I think a version of that can be applied here. So the core knowability thesis, as I stated it last time, said all knowable ordinary truths are knowable via reasoning from, well, let's, I'm setting it just slightly differently now, but let's just do it in terms of evidence, are knowable via reasoning from core evidence, where core evidence is roughly perceptual evidence about the distribution of primary and secondary qualities in the world and introspective evidence. So this didn't require the claim that all knowledge is grounded in reasoning from core evidence. This is the kind of claim that a certain kind of strong foundationalism might make. The claim is just that if something is know the claim was just if something is knowable, then it's knowable in that distinctively foundationalist way. So this allows, you know, this allows with the non with the non foundationalist the possibility that all kinds of knowledge can, as a matter of fact, be had in this non foundational way. It just requires that in those cases it's also knowable in the reasoning from core evidence way. Now, uh, last time Tim had a nice counterexample to, uh, to this involving um, this propositions of the form P and P is not known by method M, where, uh, where P is a proposition that's, as a matter of fact, not known. A true proposition, knowable, but not known by method M. Kind of proposition which, whose existence I'm allowing, since I'm not saying all knowledge is had by method M. Here, method M is reasoning from core evidence. The natural fit. The natural fix for that, uh, for that kind of counterexample is to restrict this to this claim to knowable non-Fitchian ordinary truths, where non-Fitchian, as I characterized last time, is a matter of um, the kind of truths whose truth value isn't changed by, uh, wouldn't be changed if they were properly investigated. Here, this is going to have to be relativized to a method M, so not properly investigated by, uh, by method M. In any case, I'll come back to that um, to that uh, non-Fitchian condition in a second. But let, let's just look at how the argument would go without the extra non-Fitchian condition in it. Let's take the original core knowability thesis. All knowable ordinary truths are knowable from, by reasoning from core evidence. If so, it looks like that also, if that's right, it applies to non-core evidence claims. If that can be known, all non-core evidence can itself be known via reasoning from core evidence if so, it's going to be scrutable from core evidence and thereby from PQI, because core evidence is scrutable from PQI. If that's right, then skip to the last line here. It looks like all knowable truths will be a priori scrutable from PQI and core evidence. And if core evidence is itself scrutable from PQI, as it looks like it is, all knowable truths will be a priori scrutable from PQI. Now, okay, how does the Fitchian worry impact this. So there is a, there's got to be then an exception for knowable truths which are uh, Fitchian with respect to this particular method M, and that when investigated by that method, this would alter their truth value. Well, okay, we're going to have to uh, modify our conclusion to restrict it to all non-core, non-Fitchian evidence can be known in this way. Now, it's not at all clear that any of these Fitchian truths are actually going to play the role of basic evidence. Maybe they won't. But even if they do, um, all we'll do at this point is to to apply a version of the, uh, the observation from last time that Fitchian obstacles to knowability from core evidence are not obstacles to scrutability from core evidence. But basically, you know, all these worries for uh, 
the Fitch worries just aren't worries in general for knowledge of the relevant conditionals. If that's so, then if you've got knowledge in all the uh, knowable by the scrutability in all the non-Fitchian cases, you'll expect you get scrutability in all the Fitchian cases. If so, again, the conclusion goes through. So I think that that worry adds a few wrinkles, but doesn't change anything fundamental. At least that's the hope. Okay. Then, um, okay, now we have argument three from enabling and mediating roles. Maybe I'll just, for reasons of time, just discuss this one very briefly. I think it's got a useful diagnostic role to play it. One doesn't need to rely on it quite so, uh, so centrally. Here the thought is just that when people are inclined to appeal to a certain empirical factor E as essential evidence for the conditional belief in the conditional scrutability, it may well be that that evidence isn't really playing a justifying role, which is what it would need to play to defeat the argument. Instead, maybe it's just playing an enabling role or a mediating role, where roughly an empirical factor E plays an enabling role when it plays a role in the acquisition of the concepts in M. Maybe it's, you know, some empirical fact plays a causal role, or knowledge or belief in the fact or proposition plays a causal role in the acquisition of concepts. Thereby, it plays a causal role with respect to knowledge of if PQTI if PQI, then M. Empirical factors can also play a mediating role when the subject infers from PQI to E and then to M. So my own view is that many putative justifying roles for empirical factors here are better seen as enabling or mediating factors. One way to get this would be to basically to consider the, uh, the phenomenon of generalized scrutability. Just say we've got to the, got to the claim that not just uh, for all truths, e, e is scrutable from, uh, from PQTI, but for a whole bunch of, uh, for all truths, um, M. M is scrutable from, uh, from PQI or PQTI. But that for a whole bunch of, in the actual world, but for a whole bunch of nearby, nearby epistemically possible scenarios, and even not so nearby, the truth value of M was scrutable from what we might call PQI sentences um, in, about those scenarios, or PQTI sentences. So the truth value of M is conditionally scrutable not just from PQTI, but from many other PQTI star. Well, then we observe that when an empirical factor E plays a mediating role, E is going to play its role only when E is conditionally scrutable from PQTI star. In cases where you know, it looks like if PQTI star, then not E, it just won't play that role. Whereas in cases where E plays an enabling role, it looks like E can play that enabling role even for conditionals with respect to which E is false. Even in cases where if PQTI star, then not E, it looks like E can still play its enabling role in knowledge of if PQTI star, then M. So then the diagnostic, we, the basic thought here is the diagnostic we might apply is to, to see what kind of role E is playing here is to consider cases, since E is an empirical claim, there'll be scenarios where it's false. I mean, let's pretend that all scenarios are describable by, by PQTI sentences. So let's consider cases where not E is conditionally scrutable, when not E is conditionally scrutable from PQTI star. Then the, question, then the diagnostic question is, does E play the same role in knowledge of if PQTI star then M as in knowledge of if PQTI then M? That is, does E play its role even with respect to scenarios where E comes out false? Well, I think if it does play the same role, that's a very good indication that E is only playing an enabling role, not a justifying Role. I mean, you can make a case for that by thinking, well, what if one actually discovered that uh, PQTI star obtained? Then well, E would plausibly be false. 
He couldn't play a justifying role with respect to the knowledge, the conditional knowledge. Knowledge can't be grounded in a falsehood. It looks like even looks like the same applies to the conditional belief, so he just can't play a justifying role. If he doesn't play the same role in knowledge of if PQTI star than M when he is false with respect to PQTI star or not conditionally scrutable from it, I think that at least suggests that E plays a mediating role. Otherwise we'd have a non-uniformity in justifying factors between the cases. I think there are there are moves available to the opponent here. The opponent one move for the opponent is to deny generalized conditional scrutability from PQTI sentences in these cases. When scenarios where E is false, they need to add something to the PQTI sentence. But um, in any case, I think the diagnostic is at least useful. So, so, so I take this diagnostic to at least be a useful supplement to the earlier arguments to see what's going on. Okay, um, finally I'll just mention, this is my last slide, I'll just mention some objections. I'm going to take it that many different objections might be raised. There's a few objections which are out there one way or another in the, uh, the literature to claims like a priori scrutability. One kind is roughly objections tied to conceptual change and revisability. You might think, you know, as you, you know, there are worries tied to uh, concepts changing over time that might throw doubt on the a priority of later claims given earlier ones and so on. This is really going to be a focus of my, uh, my talk next time, which is about conceptual change and revisability, so maybe I won't say much about it here. Incidentally, I'll note that the talk next time, unlike the last couple, aren't going to isn't going to presuppose very much at all of what's been going on in the, uh, in the earlier talk, so hopefully it'll, it'll uh, make sense independently. Um, second, there are objections from what we might call imperfect self-knowledge. Some people think, well, this whole uh, a priori scrutability thing sort of requires us to predict what our reactions would be to certain circumstances in the future, and at least we can't expect that what we do upon supposing certain things is going to mirror what we do upon believing certain things, so the, so the two things come apart. Um, Janice Dahl and Andrew Melnick have made objections like that. I'm inclined to think that if you want to run versions of these first two objections, you're basically committed to some fairly radical claims, like denying principles akin to conditionalization um, to get them off the ground. So, I think that uh, at least requires a fairly high burden on the proponents. Um, Steve Yablo has suggested that, uh, that some of these arguments for a priori scrutability may turn essentially on introspective evidence and self-observation, as in when one observes what one's reactions are to certain scenarios. In this case, I'm inclined to think that the relevant evidence can be, in fact, um, is really just playing a mediating role, and that by being supplied with relevant introspective claims in PQTI, one doesn't need it to play a further justifying role. Finally, there's a literature on the, on the contingent a priori where some Russellians have wanted to argue that our knowledge of various contingent a priori truths, like you know, the meter stick in Paris being a meter long if it exists, is essentially justified by acquaintance with that object, not justified a priori, as, say, Kripke thought, and is therefore not a priori. There's a lot to say, and they might well be inclined to say something about something similar in the relevant cases of conditional knowledge here involving singular terms or likewise terms for kinds, essentially involved, justified by acquaintance with water. Again, there's a lot to say about that. Um, I'm inclined to think that one prima facie, my own view about these cases is that the acquaintance may be playing an enabling role in the acquisition of the relevant concepts, is not playing a justifying role. And one prima facie indication of that is roughly 
considerations about, comes from considerations about suspension of judgment. One could, in principle, suspend judgment in the claim that, a, uh, that the, uh, the meter stick exists. Uh, whatever the relevant proposition is that one is claiming to play an empirical role, one could suspend judgment in that proposition, and I think one could get the, uh, the argument, uh, the conditional knowledge still to go through. But there is a lot more to be said about those objections, and people should feel free to raise them in discussion, but I think that's good for now, so thanks very much.